Yeah, so if you turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's printed for you in your bulletin insert. And if you're visiting with us today, I just want to welcome, welcome you again. But this is our second Sunday launching into the book of 1 Corinthians. And last week was kind of an introduction week. I won't rehearse all of what we talked about last week, but I do want to encourage you. You can find that online if it would help you. We talked about some of the sacred canopies uh, that basically cultural sacred realities that would be normal in Corinth. And Paul writes to a church and says, you know, there's a lot of things outside the church, the way people view reality, whether it's about the competitiveness of the culture or money or sensuality or conflict and how it's dealt with, all that stuff outside the body of Christ, it's, it's worked its way into the church. And Paul writes a very passionate letter to a people he loved. And he says, you know, you're not as mature as you think you are. And he talks to them about how the culture of the world in many ways has caused them to celebrate deviant sexual, sexual practices. That they're, they're full of conflict and we're going to look at some of that this morning. But what I want us to look at this morning is the, the way Paul chooses to start in verse 10 as he gets into the meat of his letter. He essentially says inside the church are sacred canopies also. That the divide that you're supposed to know between the world outside the church and those who profess Christ in him alone, it's a real divide. And we're supposed to seek to bridge that divide. It's called mission. But inside the church, there shouldn't be sacred canopies and cultures set up within you. There should be no division among you. And so you see a title that I put in the bulletin for you. Just There should be no division in the church, just a divide. A divide from the world of those who do, do not profess Jesus to be the way of God's rescue for sinners. The words I'm about to read to you, um, Paul loved the church at Corinth. You're gonna see that multiple times he says, brothers, 39 times in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to the church as his brothers. More than any letter he wrote to any people, whether it's the church at Ephesus or wherever. 39 times he just calls them brothers, this term of affection. Brothers, I want you to be united in Jesus and I don't want the divisions of the world outside you or divisions within you to distract from the gospel of Jesus. Now, I've struggled this week um, with this, just to be honest with you. And it's kind of like for me, it's not like when you do two services, it's first half of a game, second half of a game. But I, as a coach who's, coached, who's coached a lot of kids' sports, oftentimes I sit at halftime and I'm like, what the heck just happened? They're like, it's all falling apart, coach. I'm like, well, the good news is, is we're only halfway done. And you can do what you are called to do and we can try some new things and we can be a team. Preaching two services is not like that at all. Um, but even trying to get through this in the first service, I'm not happy with how my heart's I, I'm aware and you are aware of how divided our world is right now. It's, it's sick to your stomach, messy. And I feel like the enemy of our souls believes that if he can simply cause the church to deal with divisions within her, then the gates of hell will prevail against Jesus and his church. And we're called to say that's absolutely not going to be the way history is written by God's design. We are God's people and we are under the umbrella of Jesus. And we want him to root out all division within us that we would be united about these things that we're called to be united in. And so I'm, I'm not going to give cultural examples of division. I'm going to try not to. And here's why. 
Because I think if I did, especially at the front end of this message, you might be tempted to stop listening. And you'd wonder what sacred umbrella that I'm speaking about and, and what angle I'm coming from. And that wouldn't do us any good. So the prayer this morning is that God would use his word not to give us general truth, but that by his Holy Spirit, if you or I are part of divisions underneath the body of Christ in which we distract people from the glory of Jesus and his cross and we actually empty it of his power. That's what he says in verse 17. Eloquent arguments about different umbrellas inside the church of God, it empties the cross inside the church. And I've been praying all week long, Lord, if there are people that I preach to that do not realize that they actually are somewhat divisive or they put people, or people feel pressure when they're around them that you would root it out. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to read the text and enter in. Lord, would you just help us now? Expose us to the beauty of the cross of Jesus that is so central. Convince us and convict us if we have taken things that are not trivial. Things matter to you, but we've risen them to a level of such central importance or such, such a sacred canopy that, that, that that's the camp that we're in, or that's the party that we're a part of, would you forgive us and would you expose us to ourselves so that we can repent and turn to you and be a united group of people in a divided world? I just ask for your help. Receive all the glory and praise and use this. Use this among people who are members of Christ Community Church or regular attendees here or even among first-time visitors. You know why we're here and why this message is important. Would you help us to grow through it? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you stand with me? And I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. Please read along. I want to encourage you to do so. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. Well, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So, so Paul says there should be no division among you, but there should be a divide, right? The church should look so foolish to the world around us. If we say that my power and the wisdom that by which I live my life comes from a message that God's revealed through his word about a crucified Savior, that's just foolishness to the world outside the church, so there should be a divide. But inside the people of God, Paul appeals, be united. And let me show you something interesting that you probably can't see it in the, in the English. In the Greek, verse 10 starts with the word but. It's got the, an adversative in front of it. So in verse 9 where we finished last week where it says, God is faithful and you're called into fellowship with the Son of, 
of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we said last week that the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which is really about, we're stakeholders in the culture of the kingdom of God. But then that's verse 9, and that's a glorious truth, but he starts verse 10 and says, but, but I appeal to you, be united by the name of Jesus Christ. I appeal that all of you agree that there be no divisions, that you have the same mind and same judgment, and we should probably be thinking similar things. Agree about what? Even in this room, right, is there a possibility that we will agree on everything? What is this unity he's talking about? So let me just hit this head on and kind of simplistically, then I want to tell a big story, big illustration to help. Let's talk about what unity is not. Unity is not uniformity. We have been created in the image of Trinity, Trinity God. One God, three persons, diverse, glorious, beautiful. We're different in our gifts and in our passions. Paul is even going to acknowledge in this letter that his own his, his own angle of ministry is different than that of Apollos, for example. So we have different angles in ministry. Unity is not uniformity. I read somewhere this week that Paul is talking about harmony, not unison. So unity is not uniformity. Unity is also not at all costs. Paul has no interest that the gospel of Jesus Christ be sacrificed on the altar of unity. Unity is not actually even the priority. What I mean by that is in verse 10, we read that the source and the foundation of unity is Jesus Christ himself. He says, I appeal to you by Jesus. There's a source, there's a foundation to the unity. Unity is not the goal in and of itself. In verse 2, he says, I'm writing to the church, to all those who together call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the source of the unity. And I want to tell a story about a different church, different denomination than our own. And it's been very public, so I'm not trying to throw stones, but I want to use an illustration from modern-day church history about the danger of prioritizing unity among Je- above the gospel of Jesus. Thaddeus Barnum is an Episcopal bishop, Anglican bishop. He wrote a book in 2008 called Never Silent. And what he does is he chronicles the falling apart of the Episcopal church in the United States of America. And again, I'm not going to throw stones, but I want you to understand how in this narrative, the the Episcopal Church elevated unity above fidelity to Jesus and fidelity to the Scriptures, and everything crumbled. Let me show you what what happened. It had been brewing for decades, and in the 80s and the 90s, it was just very obvious that there was major theological divide inside of the Episcopal Church in America. Um, certainly issues of sexuality were kind of up in the forefront because Episcopal churches in America were ordaining openly homosexual clergy. And the Anglican communion across the world was saying, not only is that outside of conformity to Scripture, but there are all sorts of ways in which even your view of God and your view of his authoritative word is outside of the bounds of orthodoxy. And when things really got bad, there were different church meetings and such by the global Anglican communion. And and when they would vote to call the American church to repentance, it wasn't even close, just so you know. It was like 80%, 20%. The tiny, wealthy, American, progressive, liberal, Episcopal church was a very small minority versus the global church saying, what's our authority? And in the midst of it all, one of the progressive bishops, the bishop of of Newark, New Jersey, his name is John Spong, He came out with what he called the 12 Theses, a call to a new reformation, 1998. So I was a sophomore in college. 
Had no clue this was happening. Spong said outlandish things in his theses, and he was calling other bishops to believe the same things that he was seeing. So I'm going to just list some things. Here's what Spong said about God in his first thesis, thesis statement. Understanding God in theistic categories as a, quote, supernatural being in power dwelling somewhere exterior, external to the world and capable of invading the world with miraculous power is no longer believable. Most God talk in liturgy and conversation is meaningless. Of Jesus, Spong said, if God can no longer be thought of in theistic terms, then conceiving of Jesus as, quote, the incarnation of a theistic deity is a bankrupt concept. Of original sin, he wrote, the biblical story of the perfect creation from which human beings have fallen into sin is pre-Darwinian mythology or post-Darwinian nonsense. Of Jesus and his miracles, Spong said, in a post-Newtonian world, supernatural invasions, invasion of the natural order performed by God or, quote, the incarnate Jesus are simply not viable expressions of what actually happened. Of the atonement, Spong said, substitutionary atonement presents us with a God who's barbaric, a Jesus who's a victim, and it turns human beings into little more than guilt-filled creatures. The phrase, quote, Jesus died for my sins is not just dangerous, it's absurd. Spong said of the resurrection that the Easter event indeed transformed the Christian movement, but that does not mean it was the physical resuscitation of Jesus' deceased body back into human history. The earliest biblical records state that God raised him. Raised him into what, we must ask? Spong says the experience of resurrection must be separated from its later mythological explanations. Of ethics, thesis number nine, Spong wrote, the ability to define and separate good from evil can no longer be achieved with appeals to ancient codes like the Ten Commandments or even the Sermon on the Mount. Contemporary moral standards must be hammered out in juxtaposition between life-affirming moral principles and external situations. Okay, that's a lot. That's kind of heady. Basically, you have a bishop 20-some-odd years ago asking other bishops to deny the authority of Scripture completely. And the global church had none of it. And the global church was trying to process what was going on, and they called the American church to repentance. Or at least, to be honest, call yourself out of fellowship. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest office in the Anglican Communion, and many American Episcopal bishops, they responded with a mantra. And this was their mantra. They said to the conservative church across the globe, they said, stop being divisive. This is the quote, we are called to unity. Is that how that works? The church, we're called... To unity, or are we called to follow Jesus and that produces unity among us? Called to submit to his authoritative word. And so listen to the response from a man named, a bishop of Southeast Asia, the archbishop named Moses Tay. He said this. He said, unity is the invisible dress the king is wearing. We must face the facts. Unity was broken a long time ago. It can never become first priority. Biblical unity must come by being in Christ. If unity is not in Christ through obedience to the word of God by becoming a child of God, saved, redeemed, made new in Jesus, then unity is just not possible. And that's what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth. 
There should be a major divide between you and those outside of the church that do not profess Christ. But inside of the body, there ought be no division among you that distracts from the purity and the priority of Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection. And so hear that before I even jump into what Paul says about divisions here. There must be divide between the church of Jesus Christ and the world outside the church that doesn't profess Christ. And do you know what we call trying to cross that divide? Mission. Mission. To call sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins to repent and turn to God as revealed in the scriptures. But inside the body, Paul is brokenhearted and grieved and he says, I appeal to you, speak the same primary thing about Jesus. Let there be no divisions among you. And the Greek word for divisions there, it's used in Mark chapter 1 to describe when, when the, the fishing net wasn't torn. Remember they hauled in such a, a large load of fish and the, and the net wasn't torn? That's the Greek word here that Paul uses for division. Don't have fractures among you. But he knew that there were fractures, so he had this report. We read of it in verse 11. A report came to him from Chloe's people. As I mentioned last week, I feel, feel really bad for Chloe. She got thrown under the bus. Her email got forwarded onto the church. It's been reported to be my Chloe and her people that you are full of quarreling divisions. The word quarreling is important because I want you to understand. He's going to say that your divisions might be rooted in good things. He has nothing bad to say about Apollos or about Peter, but when he adds the word quarrelsomeness and divisiveness, he is talking about sin. That's why we read from Galatians 5 earlier when Pastor Bill read from that. Galatians 5 lists divisiveness, division, quarrelsomeness. It's sin. So Paul's going to hit this head on and he doesn't mince words. He gets very personal. So personal that he implicates himself as being one that's pointed to among these personality cliques. There was selective followership of Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus. What's going on? Well, one commentator says it like this. All Christians select different aspects of the truth at different times for particular emphasis. But when a Christian or a group of Christians becomes totally absorbed in one aspect of the truth to the neglect or exclusion or denial of the whole truth as it is in Jesus, then the danger point has been reached. That's when selectivity can become heresy. It's happened all through the history of the church. We need to emphasize Jesus' humanity. But if we exclusively emphasize his humanity, there goes his divinity and we are now heretical in what we're teaching. Many of you know I help do some consulting with nonprofits. Picture me sitting with a, a leadership team talking to the uh, members of a nonprofit and one person says, marketing is the most important thing we need. And the next person says, no, it's not marketing, it's philanthropy. The next person says, no, it's not that, it's performance. What are the measurables by which we actually operate with the goals we said we're going to do? And there are times to focus on each one of those things. But if any one of the people in those sections of the organization think that what they do is the whole organization, what ceases to exist? The mission of the organization. That's a little bit of what Paul is saying here. And these personality parties were such a big deal that Clement of Rome, 40 years later, references the same exact parties. The Paul party, the Apollos party, and the Peter party talking about Corinth, 40 years later. So let me try to, try to describe these. There's the Paul party. This makes sense, right? Um, we follow the original. 
Paul was the church planter. Have you been a part of a group that likes to hearken back in their history and say, remember the good old days? Like that's what, that's what we hold the highest value, the, the, the original days. You have a little bit of that with the reference to Paul. Paul was there for 18 months. It was amazing. It was, tri- it was full of trials, but God's fruit. So this is the group that is somewhat reactionary because when Apollos came along or Peter em- people emphasized Peter, that'd be when the group would surface and say, oh, whoa, whoa, hold on. We don't follow Apollos. We, we, follow the, we follow Paul. And certainly Paul, as a Gentile Christian, had emphases that were different than Peter or Apollos. He was emphatic about the freedom that the Gentile Christians had from the ceremonial law. He was emphatic about salvation comes by grace through faith and not of ourselves, not even of your covenant pedigree. So there were ways in which Paul had unique theology, but there was a group that said, we're the Paul group. Also, know with me, have you ever been a part of a, of a culture that formed because it was against the other people around? It was the best of the options? That usually doesn't last very long. It's reactionary. The second party, the Apollos party. I follow Apollos. Apollos came from Alexandria in Egypt. We read that in Acts 18. Alexandria in Egypt was one of the most respective and creative university towns in the Mediterranean. So just the reference of Apollos, and you probably have a a man with incredibly high intellectual ability. We read in Acts 18, Paul writes that he was a, Luke writes, excuse me, that he was a phenomenal expositor of the scriptures. He was a winsome teacher. This group is probably the group that follows after the most effective, most recently nuanced apologetic, right? I listen to that podcaster that just says it better than others. He's just smarter. Something like that. Third group, I follow Cephas or Peter. We don't know if Peter ever made it to Corinth, but we know that Peter was known as a leader in the Jerusalem church. He had walked with Jesus longer than Paul had. Peter had tendencies towards ceremonial Judaism. We know that. That's in Galatians chapter 2 when Paul battles him and says, time out, you're trying to hold over the Gentiles, the, the way that the Jewish Christians do things, and now you're adding something to the gospel. So Peter had more sensitivity or at least a little bit more symmetry with Jewish practices than Paul would have. Maybe people just followed Peter because he was such a transparent leader and he was just a mess and it was kind of fun to follow a guy who was just so out there. But there's the Peter camp. And then fourthly, probably most divisively, there's what Paul writes, the Christ camp. Now, when I first read this, I want you to know it sounds like the good group, right? You have people that follow Paul, people follow Apollos and Peter, then there's people that follow Christ. But as we consider the way Paul listed in context, this is another one of the divisive groups that he's concerned about. Because right after this, he says, is Christ divided? So what is he describing? This is probably a group that surfaced and essentially saw themselves as the spiritual elite, Right, because we know there was Gnosticism in in, in Corinth, so super spiritual kind of mystical way of describing things. If Apollos is known to kind of brought a lot of intellectual advancement into the church, this is kind of the group that brought the Gnostic hyper-spiritual tendency. I want to read to you from a commentator that helped me think through this incredibly. Pryor says this, when the Spirit of God is at work, there always emerges a group who sit very lightly to any human leadership. 
With a strong dose of anti-authoritarianism built into them, they would have taken the very plausible line, who needs human leaders anyway? We follow Christ as our leader. He's the head of the body. We depend on him alone. We go directly to him. And prior rights, often the psychological basis for this kind of emphasis lies in a mixture of strong individualism and latent insecurity. The interesting part about the Christ party is that they tend sooner than later to hive off and form their own church, mainly because they've come to eventually feel that the average local church is just not spiritual enough. Have you seen parties like this in the church? And it's amazing that Paul doesn't attack any of the leaders whose names have become synonymous with these parties. But basically what he says, he says it's all wrong. And that's the tenor that we're called to have when we think of division inside the body. So I've been thinking all week long, what does this look like when it's happening now, here? I think it looks like folks saying, hey, I, I mainly or I only listen to this teacher or this group of teachers. And I want most people that I interact to know who I listen to dominantly and here you should read this book. Or... Or people will change the subject no matter what it's about to orient around a, an angle of theology that they're studying or they're reading. Or we make assumptions. Hey, before I knew that this form of teaching existed, I was just, I was wandering and I didn't know it. And now I want others to experience the same maturity I've known. Therefore, I want to make sure I present it. And the challenge is, is this, these are people that often don't realize they present it up front before they've even gotten to know the story another person is walking sometimes. Often, folks that may not realize they're a part of a group like this, they form very few new relationships. Or if they do, it's forming a relationship because they found someone who will hear them share what they think that person might need to know. Often it's, in conversation, you, a person will reference scripture less and they'll more often frequently reference another person who said something about scripture or theology. The, the, these are people, and, and forgive me, I'm being very careful here, but 20 years in ministry in different churches and church planting and such, I have had people come to me and say, I don't really know, but I feel, I don't want to be in a community group with that person. They, I feel pressure from them. Well, have you gone to talk to them? Well, I don't even know why I feel pressure. Well, you might be feeling pressure because they, they have a sacred canopy and you're not sure if you fit underneath it. You don't know how to navigate that. And it's stressful. Have you ever seen it happen where somebody's in a community group or with Christians and they're a new believer and they say something and it smacks of a theology that we may not subscribe to. So maybe it, it smacks of total Arminianism and it's just the person that's under the sacred canopy of the Reformed faith is just pumped because they have their moment to be like, here's what we believe about God's sovereignty. And what happens as a pastor is I have people come to me and say, I don't know if I want to go back to that. It didn't feel safe. What do you mean it didn't feel safe? You were with Christians talking about the Bible. Well, apparently I don't know enough and I have to know some things about eschatology. What's eschatology? Or whatever. I'm doing a little bit of a dance here because I want you to sense the exasperation that Paul has here. And he asks three questions rhetorically to show us his own exasperation. He says, is Christ divided? Literally, is Christ parceled out? Second question, was Paul crucified for you? He knows people are claiming his name. 
Think with me how painful this question would be for Paul to even write this. In Romans chapter 7, Paul basically says, I'm a pile of flesh, and I can't get it right. The things I do, I don't want to do. The things I do, I, do, I don't. Who will deliver me from this body of flesh? How sad would it be for Paul that he knew that there was a church where people were saying, I want to be like Paul. I want to follow Paul. Third question, were you baptized into the name of Paul? He touches on the beauty of baptism and that when we receive the sign and seal of our salvation in Christ, the cover and the washing, it's Christ's name is put on top of us. When you go back to your baptism later in life as you go through sundry trials, what does it mean to say, I've been claimed by Christ, I've been washed by him? There's no human leader that you or I could point to to say, that one's got my back, not before a holy and righteous God. I just think how grieved Paul is to say there's any division at all. Now, I have basically two hours of material, and I learned that in the first sermon. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I believe that God is calling us to be a church where until the day Jesus returns, people will wonder what Christ Community Church is about, and I think it's possible by God's Holy Spirit that they don't say, that's a church that's known for X. Do you know churches that are known for that thing? It could be anything. It could be a schooling choices. It could be a view of God's law. It could be charismatic, Holy Spirit things, but they're known for something. Here's what Paul is saying. If you're known for something and you can even articulate what you're known for with eloquence, you're emptying the cross of its power. And he starts his letter this way. And what's amazing about this is in chapter 3, he's going to go right back to divisions again. Do you know what chapter 2 is about? The Holy Spirit. So it's a sandwich. Don't be divided. Let's talk about the Spirit among you. Don't be divided. The Holy Spirit is required for Christ's church on earth to so elevate the cross of Jesus that it's all we're known for, even though, is it not true that we're called to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ? Aren't we supposed to try to study the scriptures and understand theology? Is all theology created equal? No. Is there a major difference between covenant reform theology and dispensational baptistic theology, to use big words? Major difference in how you view reality. We're called to understand those differences. But somehow in seeking to articulate those differences, if it becomes about a sacred umbrella where we're mostly about correcting people that are not under this umbrella, I think the apostle gets exasperated with the church on earth who's somehow made the application of the faith the essence of it. So what's needed to keep from becoming divided? Because we know the enemy just needs to think he can get in and wedge the door open where conflict and divisions exist and people start to avoid each other. Or people don't realize they're putting pressure on others and there's a wake of people behind them going, don't really feel comfortable in that setting. The enemy thinks they've won. So what's needed to prevent that from happening? It's super simple, and it's where we're going to end. This is literally what Paul says. What we need is Christ-centered preaching. I say that not to you because I'm standing here right now. That's actually what he says in verse 17. To not become divided, distracted by sacred umbrellas among us, 
What the church needs is to hear Christ-centered preaching that elevates the gospel of Jesus and the cross of Christ. That's all. The world's going to find it foolish, so you'll find the divide between the church and the world. But inside the church, it will be what protects us. And so I want you to think with me how the cross of Christ, if it's held high, how does it directly help us address quarreling and divisiveness among us? Pretty simple. First of all, does the cross of Jesus not put each of our need for forgiveness and mercy that covers deceptive sin at the center of what we believe? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart's deceptively wicked. That's what I have. I have a deceived heart. The problem with divisions is people think everyone else is deceived and they just need to be taught by, by me. Doesn't the cross of Christ put at the very center, I'm a deceived sinner, and but by the grace of God, I, I don't know what is truth or error. So it puts humility at the center. What else does it put at the center? It puts the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus at the center. Romans 5 says we have one federal head over us, and it's not Paul, it's not Apollos. It's not Peter. It's Jesus, and you stand before God under him as your federal head, and God says, that one's righteous in my sight because of my son's perfection. That one's curse for sin was paid by my son. Why would we allow ourselves to say, that's who I follow, if it's just a human being who also needs Jesus as their federal head? And then thirdly, if we put the cross of Christ at the center, I think this is fascinating. It essentially causes us to reframe every eloquent argument about anything related to the gospel. Because what he actually says in verse 17 is if, if an eloquent argument's required for you to grow and to understand the way to view theology or to view holiness, if you need eloquent arguments to get the central point of cross, you are emptying the cross of its power. And so what it does is it gives us the opportunity to have conversations about what the scriptures teach, about how it's applied to our life, to learn and grow from others, but to not need the eloquent argument to actually be sanctified. Because we need each other to point us back to the cross of Jesus. So I want to ask you to pray with me towards something. I want you to pray with me toward our church viewing everything but the cross and resurrection of Jesus as almost trivial. Now hear me carefully. I don't believe it's almost trivial. How we disciple our children in our homes, not trivial. How we view God's law versus God's spirit, not trivial. I could give a bunch of different examples. Why would I say that Paul is maybe saying to us that almost view everything as trivial and here's why? Because on the eternal timeline of reality, as we look back to 2020, this polarized time in our world, and it's just a blip of time on the calendar, and we're standing righteous before God in Christ one day, what will ultimately be the sacred umbrella that we will have wished we were under right now? That the cross of Jesus is sufficient to rescue sinners, that the wisdom and power of God crashing into humanity in his sovereign will finds its central focal point in the cross of Jesus and we will seek to help each other grow, but we will ask for God not to allow the things we're passionate about to take center stage. Small example. 
Do you realize that in, the, in light of all the things going on outside of our church, a person's eschatology, that means their view of end times, their view of the millennium, according to Revelation, has major implications in how we view current day things. I don't want to get into it, it just does, right? It's so important that a person who holds a post-millennial view, for example, that Jesus is going to come after a thousand-year time where all the nations are turning unto him, and a person who's an amillennialist who believes that right now is the spiritual millennium and the gospel's being preached and the gates of hell can't stop it, it's so important that we get together and we talk. And we're trying to understand where do you get that from Scripture, where do you get that from Scripture, but ultimately, what is the Scripture telling us? Who's going to reign on this earth? Jesus, how does any heart or any nation state or anything turn to Christ by forgiveness and mercy found on the cross of Jesus? We need to have those dialogues to grow. Let there be no division among us, but only so much as we find our center point, the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we anchor our Lord's Day worship in the sacrament every Sunday. That a service won't go by where I accidentally or we in our thought life end up under some different sacred canopy. There's only one sacred canopy for the church. We're hidden in Christ in God. And he paid what was required for our rescue. And I pray deeply that we'll be a church that's undivided in a world that wants us to be full of division. So I'm gonna pray, but I have been praying all week long that if you or me or any of us has caused others to feel pressure about something other than the cross of Jesus, that God would lead us to repentance and restoration and incredible conversations with each other. This is a sacrament that symbolizes our unity. Let's partake of it together. Let me pray. Father, would you nourish us now by this sacrament, this sign and seal of what's been accomplished for us in Jesus. Unite us as we study this book, would we be convinced and committed to what our Savior's accomplished for us? Help us love well. Help us not look like the church at Corinth did. Would that not be the report that goes out to Johnson City or the Tri-Cities about this group of people? Have mercy on us, we pray. In Christ our Lord, amen.